So I want to um, continue to unpack our, our exploration for this retreat, the exploration of the teachings and the practices that we're engaging with. Um, but before I do that, just to uh, acknowledge and appreciate um, your practice, yeah, all of you, each of you. Yeah. It's always uh, really deeply moving and very inspiring <laughs> to just be in the presence of that, yeah, to know um, what it takes. Yeah, discomfort in the body, agitation in the mind, sleepiness, <laughs> so much sleepiness on the first day. And yet, you know, there's, there's a showing up to that yeah. and a willingness to, to meet it, to engage with it, which is yeah, very inspiring and worth acknowledging and worth appreciating yeah. in each other and also to appreciate in yourself. So what's this, what's this human experience that we're exploring, that we're meeting? And something that uh, continues to strike me as I keep exploring this, yeah, is how much or to what degree experience um, is not what we take it to be. Yeah, we assume certain things about our experience. For example, we assume that it's neutral. Yeah, we assume it's objective. Yeah. This is what's going on. Yeah. It's an assumption that, that we really just instinctively have as, as human beings. Yeah. And it's a conditioned assumption, something we've been told, something we've <coughs> learnt about the world and that we continue to to believe and yet through practice we see something else yeah. and we kind of deepen this another way of seeing another way of relating to, to our experience and so I'm going to repeat <coughs> something that I said yesterday and Ramiro also said it this morning yeah. in any moment of experience yeah, any moment of experience which we perceive, we take to be neutral and objective, it's this. Yeah. But actually, in a moment of experience, there's an object and attention. Yeah. And there's an atmosphere or a way of relating to our experience. Yeah. And that shapes that experience. It also means that the experience is not neutral, <laughs> right? And it's not objective because it's being shaped by the way of relating, and the way of relating changes, yeah. and is changeable. Yeah, that's kind of one really interesting thing here, yeah. or two. <laughs> First is just to know. Yeah. We take things to be objective, yeah, to be existing from their own side, we can say. You know. The temperature is like this. I remember um, some years ago I was teaching a retreat in India. It was February in uh, northern India, you know, not in the mountains and in, in the plains, but they get pretty cold as well in February. Um, and the manager of the retreat was from Poland. She was walking around uh, wearing pretty much what I'm wearing right now, minus the shawl around my waist. So she was just wearing a cotton shirt and trousers. I, on the other hand, grew up in Israel, uh, quite a different climate to Poland. I was wearing every single layer I owned, yeah. and there were a lot because I knew I was going there. Yeah. And I just want to kind of give that as an example yeah, about, you know, we think, oh, it's hot or it's cold. <laughs> yeah. that's, that's just the truth, right? It's either hot or it's cold. No. <laughs> yeah. It depends on how you relate to it. It depends what your body's used to. 
It relates um, to kind of the preferences you've developed towards one or the other. Yeah. And you think you've got certain preferences, and at least you know what this body likes about heat and cold, and then you hit menopause. It's so waiting to say that. Ever heard menopause mentioned in a Dharma talk before? I feel like, how are we not mentioning it more? Yeah. Then you hit menopause and the whole temperature regulation goes out the window and suddenly, you know, and you hear about hot flushes, but then you might be exp ex experiencing cold flushes, which is what I get. I think I might be the only one. I've never heard of them before. <laughs> yeah. It's like, no, even that changes, right? Because it's all conditioned. It's not objective. It's not neutral. It's not just that. Yeah as we take it to be. Yeah. Conditioned, intricate, interesting. Yeah. So hopefully we're starting to, to get more of a sense of this from our own experience. Because it's something that we need to kind of keep remembering. Yeah, because it goes against the stream yeah, of our habits and our conditionings as human beings. Yeah. So keep needing to remember this. And we also need to keep remembering, you know, we have a tendency to focus on the object and think the experience is happening there. Yeah? It's happening in that sound or that temperature. Yeah? Or that sensation in the body. That's where the experience is. And we need to keep remembering that is the default setting, but it's not the whole of what is unfolding. Because yeah? the experience is also happening through the way of relating. Yeah. It's also playing a huge part in what's unfolding. And so, you know, in our practice, we're cultivating, yeah, seeing more, yeah, seeing more, not taking things at face value because that's what we've always seen up to now. Yeah. But with gentleness, saying, oh, what's the object in attention now? What's the way of relating? And just remembering that they are there. Yeah. So we're cultivating the capacity to see this, to remember this. And we're also cultivating then the capacity to attend skillfully to what we see. Yeah. To attend skillfully to what we see. And I'm going to say more about that this evening. And so attending skillfully according to these teachings, this tradition, means, you know, to attend to our experience in ways that support well-being, to cultivate ways of relating and ways of seeing that support well-being, yeah. and to stop feeding, to let go of yeah. those ways of relating that bring um, dukkha, yeah, it's a Pali word, yeah, a very beautiful word. Like many words in Pali, has many, many meanings. Yeah. Um, Ramiro used one of them today when he was talking about suffering. That's one way that dukkha is translated. Yeah. So to stop feeding those ways of relating that feed our suffering for ourselves and others. Um, I really like Thich Nhat Hanh's tradition, um, translation. For those of you who know Thich Nhat Hanh, um, wonderful our Zen master from the Vietnamese tradition. Um, and he translates dukkha, translates dukkha as ill-being. So we have well-being and its opposite, ill-being. And I love that. You know, I love that because it's, it's really broad. Yeah, with ill-being we can see, you know, it's, it's broad. It's from a little niggle. Yeah, discomfort. Things not quite going my way. Yeah to really kind of more, much more extreme areas and intense areas of suffering, of stress, of distress. Yeah, kind of has that, that range. So when we see yeah, how experience is shaped, that it's shaped even, <laughs> to see that it is shaped and then how, yeah, what are the building blocks of that? Um, that opens up possibilities for us really opens up pretty vast possibilities. Yeah. It allows us to identify less with the object in experience. Yeah. Oh, it's hot, I'm hot. Yeah. How quickly that happens. Oh, it's cold, I'm cold. Yeah. Yeah. 
oh, there's a discomfort in the, in the knee, I'm in pain. Yeah? So quickly that identification builds up. Um, and it also supports, us, supports things not to get so solid and distinct. Yeah? The sense of self which comes with identification, this is happening to me, this is me. Yeah? And also the sense of object. Yeah, that pain in my knee, which I must get rid of. Yeah. And this kind of brings in more agency, more possibilities of response, more things that we can do. And so, like I've said this yesterday, um, Part of our exploration, part of our cultivation is also to increase our understanding. You know, what supports well-being, uh, what, uh, what cultivates it, what can we tune in, what, we can, what can we do, yeah? And then what hinders it, what blocks it, what gets in the way. And hopefully we're already really starting to see in our experience that uh, qualities like interest, like kindness, like compassion, like gratitude, uh, like spaciousness, like patience. So it's a long list, I can go on and on. Like playfulness and creativity. Yeah? Perhaps we can see these actually support well-being. Yeah? They support a sense of agency. There's something I can do here. And they change the experience through a different way of relating. I want to say a little bit more about that in a moment. And then ways of rela- re- relating like rejection, like reactivity in its different forms, you know, they grabbing onto, clenching onto, yeah, and the pushing away, or the disinterest. <laughs> I'm not interested in you, breath. Much more interested in this fantasy. <laughs> yeah. And we can see that these either immediately or over time, lead to ill-being, lead to the opposite, obstruct well-being. And so I want to give an example of boredom. Anyone here like to be bored? No, someone's saying. (laughs) Yeah, so it's interesting to see what happens when we're bored. Yeah, I, I... I would imagine you had some moments of boredom today. So we're bored and we tend to see boredom as something that we don't want, something we should get rid of, exchange, upgrade for something else. We can see boredom in a different way. For example, have you noticed that when you're bored and it's just the boredom, it's actually pretty calm. Think about it. It's actually pretty calm. That's interesting, isn't it? So boredom is a state of calm. And sometimes we can really see it in meditation. We get calm and we get calm. We get calm. We say, oh, that's nice. That's nice. Calm. Calm. It gets calmer and calmer and calmer. At some point, it's so calm, it's so quiet, that what happens? The interest goes out of the experience. And that's when it becomes boredom. Yeah? So we can redefine boredom from something we don't like and we don't want to simply state of calm with no interest. Yeah? Yeah? And maybe you can start to see <laughs> how our life starts to get pretty interesting. Yeah? So we can pause a little bit with boredom and uh, inquire and say, how do we habitually perceive boredom? So as I said, often we don't want it. We perceive it as unpleasant. Yeah? It's not enough going on to interest me, to engage me. So I look for something else. Yeah? I look for something else. And so it's unpleasant, pleasant, therefore I don't like it, so there's some aversion. If I'm in the meditation hall, very difficult to look for something else. <laughs> so there's just the aversion building up, then probably that will lead to some restlessness. Yeah. Yeah. It's really unpleasant building on itself. But we can see the aversion and the rejection are ways of relating 
to that calm without the interest. Can you see that? The ways of relating, they're not inbuilt into the experience of boredom. The ways that we're relating to that. Interestingly enough, when we relate to something like boredom with aversion and rejection, what happens is that there's more dukkha, there's more ill-being than there was before. Because aversion is not a nice feeling. Rejection is not something that is pleasant to us. Even when it's quite subtle. So it can just be interesting to... Uh, to notice, you know, if this is what happens for you. And you can use memory to just think of a time when you're... I mean, maybe you're bored right now. That's, you know, pretty likely. Um, So you can explore right now. Am I bored? What happens? If you're not bored right now, it'll come. But you can also use the memory, yeah, at some point in your experience to just explore, just to see, ah, that moment when I felt bored, yeah, what was it like? Was it calm? Was there a version? And of course we can play with this in different directions. So when we recognize boredom, what can we do? Yeah. So obviously if boredom is calm without interest, we can bring interest. Yeah. That is not something that's, that we've learned to do very well, right? Because we're, we're used to, again, we're, we're looking for the interest externally. We think things bring interest. Yeah. Actually, the interest comes from here. It's a way of relating, so we can bring interest. One really interesting way of doing that, an interesting way to bring interest to boredom, is try to get more bored. Just sit there and say, all right, I'm into this. I want to get more bored. I want to get more bored. Come on, boredom. I want you to grow. Try it. You know, yes, it's a great joke to say in a, in a Dharma talk, and I'm glad that at least some of you are laughing. But it gets even funnier when you try it yourself, because it's impossible. Yeah. If you try to get more bored, you won't succeed to get more bored. Yeah. But your experience will come alive. Because yeah? what have we brought back in? We've brought back the interest. Yeah? And we've changed the way of relating to the boredom from pushing it away, from not wanting it. Yeah, from trying to get rid of it, we actually said, hey, yeah, I want you to stay. Yeah. I want more of you. So this is a big insight. Yeah, it's a big insight, and, and we can kind of get a sense of it even, without, even before trying it ourselves. Yeah. We actually have some awareness <laughs> somewhere about how our minds work. And so it's a big insight into several things, into the fact that experience is shaped. Yeah? So we take boredom to just be something that's just there. It's boredom, it's a thing. Yeah? Yeah, that's one way it's shaped. Um, and we also see it's actually made up to a very great degree fr- to, up from how I'm relating to it. Yeah? That impacts how it appears. It's also an insight to see that a lot of the habitual ways that we relate to our experience often lead away from that which we want to get to. Yeah? So we want more well-being, and we have something like boredom or like pain in the knee or uh, like an unpleasant sound in the environment, whatever that might be. And we want to have well-being, but we relate to that which is occurring in our experience in a way that actually brings the opposite. Yeah. So that aversion, that resistance in this case, or that holding on, yeah. holding on to experience. This is probably also something that some of you have had today. So it might be that you're sitting here and it's a little bit more calm and there's more calm. Yeah. There's more calm and there's something in you that says, ah, oh, that's nice. Yeah. And there's more calm and the calm stays, the energy stays with the calm. There's no, stays balanced. It's really nice. Really nice. And at some point, the thought appears, oh, I better hold on to it. Yeah. Don't want to lose this. Or sometimes you almost hear it pop like a, yeah, like a bubble. Yeah. Because that's another way of relating that we have, as Ramiro spoke of this morning. It's like holding on, clenching. So often, the habitual ways of reactivity yeah, 
grabbing onto something, pushing something away, actually bring the opposite of that which we're trying to get. Yeah. That which we deeply wish for. You know, that beautiful aspiration that brings us here. And that's, you know, something to see, not as a way of uh, criticizing ourselves or feeling bad about ourselves, but actually, again, to learn. This is how it operates when we're not aware, when we're not conscious. Yeah. Keep feeding these particular tendencies, which are there because we've repeated them. Yeah. And human beings have repeated them before us. Yeah. So we've kind of inherited many of them yeah, from previous generations. So we can see that um, you know, freedom from dukkha, freedom from inner being, yeah, is that movement from reactivity to response, yeah, from being limited by habits, patterns, conditioning, yeah, to possibilities. Yeah. And we need to see this uh, again and again. We need to experience this again and again. It's an insight that keeps deepening for us. Yeah, the more we experience it, the more we explore it. We can also begin to see that um, a lot of our habitual patterns and conditionings are so habitual <laughs> that they're hard to see. Yeah? They're so habitual that they're hard to see. Yeah? We actually experience our lives via them, through them. Yeah? We shape our experience, but we're not aware that they're there. Yeah? We don't notice them. And we don't notice their impact. And so we bring awareness to this as we practice. Yeah, we bring awareness to this. And this is a really beautiful, noble thing to do with a human life. Yeah. It's a beautiful, noble thing to do, to see that which is unseen. Yeah. So we can bring the awareness and we can cultivate the sensitivity to recognize. Yeah. Recognize when this is happening. Recognize that there's a way of looking at at play, start to be interested in what it is and how it's impacting experience and what possibilities we have um, of response. So an example of this can be um, today, this afternoon, when we're more tuning in to the pleasant and experience, yeah, pleasant breath or uh, something um, that had a sense of ple pleasantness or okayness um, or nourishment with the sound or in the body. And perhaps we could see, yeah, at least for some of us, that attending to the pleasant is not our habit. Did anyone see that? Yeah, at least a few people. Yeah, so we could see that. Sometimes we just see it because the mind just doesn't stay there. <laughs> uh, other times we might see it because there might be quite a lot of resistance. Yeah? It can also uh, be interesting to see, you know, that when we are able to do that, when we do do that, sometimes there is a real sense of well-being that comes with that. There's a softening, there's a, a release, you know, ah, just this okayness of the breathing, just that okayness of the breathing. We may have met um, this tendency of the mind to focus um, on the unpleasant <laughs> rather than the pleasant. Often we direct our attention to something. We notice the opposite. Yeah? So we're looking for the pleasant. We may have noticed, oh, the mind keeps going to what's unpleasant. Yeah? Or we feel we're able to be with the pleasant, but we just feel that's not as real. Yeah? It's not as true. The unpleasant is where life is. Yeah? And, and this is something, you know, we have this... Um, bias in the mind for this, but then um, our societies come and reinforce that. Uh, even the teachings <laughs> can reinforce that because there's so much emphasis on suffering. I often give this example, I can't resist. I was, um, was in the car with my mum about, I don't know what it was, 10, 15 years ago. And uh, we're driving along chatting going back from, driving back from my brother's, so we had about an hour to chat. And uh, she had just listened to one of my Dharma talks, I think. It doesn't happen a lot. 
She always feels like she should, <laughs> but she doesn't, bless her. Um, my mum's really an amazing person, I just want to say, in case that sounded derogatory, great inspiration for me. But anyway, she just listened to one of my talks and she said, you know, I really like, I like, you know, what the Buddha had to say, you know, he was worth listening to, but, but why is there all this emphasis on suffering? Yeah. Why is there all this emphasis on suffering? So we can see even the teachings can come through in that way. Yeah. Of like, yeah, this is where the real stuff is. Yeah. This is what's true. But that's just one way of looking. Yeah. And our minds are conditioned to look that way. Yeah. Minds are conditioned to look that way, to notice the unpleasant more than the pleasant, yeah? And to give it more value, yeah? And to stay with it for longer, yeah? The Buddha said this 2,600 years ago. Now, uh, modern psychological research is saying the same thing. The term negativity bias is, is from there, yeah? And so when we look, we can see we often have, I think all of us have, this underlying belief, yeah? That the pleasant isn't as real or as true. Yeah. And that's also something to notice and to know. Because yeah? these are the materials we're working with. It's not a recipe to get depressed <laughs> around. It's something we can work with because we can change that. Yeah? The habits of our minds are there because they've been repeated. Yeah? That also means they're changeable. We can change it in the moment. We can change it over time. Yeah. through intentional cultivation, yeah. just like we were doing today. We notice what's okay. Yeah. We notice what might even be pleasurable. And we're learning to have, have agency over where we place attention. And we're learning to be able to sustain our attention with something that is not the natural place it goes to. Yeah. And of course, the same work we do also when we work with discomfort and pain. Yeah, we do something very similar. They're two sides of the same coin. Yeah, we're interested in that full range. Yeah, not just one, but both. <coughs> so maybe we're beginning to see how this opens up possibilities of well-being for us. You know, just kind of starting to say, to see. You know, ah. What the mind portrays is just one way of reflecting experience onto a screen. Yeah? Just one script. Yeah? It's habitual. We can change that and we can remember that. Yeah? We can cultivate a clarity of seeing and a clarity of understanding. So one strong habit um, of seeing, of relating, as I said, probably notice this negativity bias a lot of the time. Yeah. And we also notice it in our meditation practice. <laughs> May have had like a lot of moments of ease, of peace, of insight. Um, but the bell rings and what we have a sense of, oh, that didn't go very well. Yeah. No, that didn't go very well. Why? Because the moments of unease they float to the surface, they're what we see, and we miss all, all the rest of it. Yeah. So there's other habits of, of um, other strong habits of relating that you may have met today, which I uh, want to name. Yeah, came up in the groups, and uh, I'd be surprised if there's anyone sitting in this hall today, yeah, right now, including Ramiro and myself, um, just to be clear, that didn't meet any of these today, or even spend significant amounts of time uh, experience life through them, experiencing life through them. So, anyone experience moments of greed today, desire, thinking about lunch? Yeah, I like to do this game. Anyone experienced aversion, resistance, any of those lovely ways of looking? Yeah. Restlessness, anyone? Agitation, body or mind? Yes, we all love that one. And probably the biggest hit of today, 
tiredness, dullness, sleepiness, low energy. Yeah. And the fifth one is doubt. Yeah. So these are five, and many of you are probably familiar with these, five um, what I'm going to refer to as ways of relating to our experience that are strong habits of the mind. Yeah? And they arise in the way we meet experience. Yeah? Important to say we meet them when we come and retreat. <laughs> but if you reflect on your life and if you watch your mind, you will see that they appear off retreat just as often. Yeah? And that's why getting to know them, learning to work with them, really worthwhile, you know, really, really worthwhile. And there's strong habits of reactivity, yeah? and there's so, so much part of our makeup and our conditioning that we often don't see them. Yeah? So we can reflect on our experience and see this, you know, we have a version, we're fixated on the object, yeah? if only this um, this leg would stop falling asleep when I'm meditating. Then my meditation yeah, would be fantastic. Yeah. If only I wasn't constantly saying yes to life, nodding off. You know what happens when you call this saying yes to life? It changes. <laughs> yeah. If only that wasn't happening, then I would really be getting this. I would be getting somewhere. Yeah. And so we fixate on the object, yeah, this is in the way. Um, and we don't look at how they're shaping our experience, and we don't look um, at, at what that opens up, the possibilities, possibilities of response. Yeah. So the Buddha had a wonderful simile for, for these five. He had actually had two, but I have a favorite, so that's the one I always uh, offer. I, I really love it. Um, Buddha spoke about, uh, gave a simile of our minds like um, a, a pool in the forest, a pool of water in the forest. And when the mind is calm and quiet, it's like the, the water in the pool is still and clear. We can see really clearly right to the bottom. Yeah? We can see through it. We can see clearly what's there. When the first of these uh, hindrances, that's what they're called um, in the tradition, desire, yeah, when that's, or greed, when that's present, um, it's um, as if someone threw a colored dye into the water <laughs> and you can choose your color. Yeah. And then the water is colored by that. Yeah. So whatever we see is colored. Yeah, we see it through that color, that dye that's been thrown into the water. When aversion is present, it's as if the water in the pool is boiling, yeah? bubbling, steaming. Yeah? So it can start, yeah, it obscures yeah, our seeing. When um, dullness and tiredness are there, are present yeah, in the body or the mind, uh, it's like one of those um, bodies of water that gets are covered in vegetation, yeah, and becomes really stagnant. Yeah. There's not enough oxygen, uh, so that's kind of the sense. Again, I, I find these really powerful. Uh, these images. When restlessness is present, it's like a, a wind is blowing across the water and making waves. Yeah, there's that movement in these waves, which again stop us from seeing clearly. And doubt, when doubt is present, it's uh, like we put our arm <laughs> into the pool, reach to the bottom and stir up all the mud. <laughs> yeah. And then it's all muddy, murky. Yeah. I, I, I love that image. It actually sounds like a lot of fun <laughs> to do that. <laughs> but I think the result may be not so great yeah. for the simile. So I love this because, you know, I think the simile really can give us a sense of how when any of these five are present, they color what we see, they color our experience, they shape our experience. Yeah. Seeing through aversion, seeing through um, sensual desire, yeah. seeing through restlessness, seeing through tiredness. Experience changes, and again, we probably had that uh, today. You know, those meditations when it seems like the meditation, uh, the bell just isn't being rung, 
sense of time changes. It can't be half an hour. It can't be. You're kidding me. For sure, they, you know, whoever's at the front here has either fallen asleep or best case scenario, they've gone into a really, really deep state of meditation and lost sense of time. But actually, we're the ones who've lost sense of time because time itself is not a fixed thing. It's not objective. It's not neutral. It depends on our mind state. So if we reflect back, you know, to a moment like that or a meditation like that, we can be pretty guaranteed there were some hindrances present. Yeah. And often they come in gangs, not just one. Yeah. Hindrance attack, one of our teachers used to call it. <laughs> yeah, they come in gangs. Yes, there was probably aversion, there may have been restlessness. Yeah. Or there may have been desire. Aversion and desire, again, two sides of the same coin. Yeah. If we're aversive to something, we're desiring something else, and vice versa. Yeah. It'd be interesting to start to see these things. Yeah. So habitually we believe, yeah. Believe, oh gosh, this, this meditation is longer than any human could stand. <laughs> Definitely longer than half an hour, 45 minutes. We believe that in that moment. Yeah. And we identify with it. I'm this aversion. Yeah. I'm this doubt. Yeah. I'm this restlessness. Yeah. We identify. Yeah. We take it to be real. Yeah. This restless mind cannot meditate. Yeah? Here's restlessness and doubt together. It's not made for meditation. Yeah? I should just quit now while there's some time left and go do something else. Yeah? This, restless, this body yeah, needs to go on an extended yoga retreat and get more flexible. Then it can come back to meditate. And we believe this yeah? in the moment. We believe it. It doesn't mean that there's not some wisdom sometimes in that you know yeah maybe we should do a bit more yoga <laughs> yeah. maybe that could be helpful but it's not as fixed yeah as we take it to be so there's a process of identification this is who i am this is what's happening to me and there's a process of solidification and fixing in place of something yeah of time yeah of experience of my identity of a thing and all of this leads to reactivity and leads to dukkha. If we don't see restlessness, we're much more likely to be activated by it yeah, and reactive. Yeah. If we don't see aversion, yeah, much more likely yeah, to be activated by it and to react from it. Mm so we can start to be interested to ask what happens when we see this as a way of relating, the hindrances also. Yeah, simply ways of relating, things that arise in the mind and shape what we see. Yeah. Which means that we can attend to them, we can respond to them, we can work with them. Not fixed, yeah? they too are not fixed, they're not here to stay, they're not who we are. And we can reflect. Again, maybe right now there's boredom or tiredness or restlessness yeah, or aversion yeah, or desire for the talk to end. Yeah. Maybe that's present, so we can work with it right now. We can say, oh, what happens if I just take a really deep, relaxing breath? Yeah. What happens to experience, even for a moment? Yeah. Is there any release that comes with that? Is there any ease that comes, even for a moment? Yeah. Our lives are made of moments. Moments matter. <laughs> yeah. And so often, one of the heartbreaking beauties of us as human beings is that we, are, we have such high aspirations, which is wonderful and important and by no means don't let go of your aspirations but sometimes the gap that's created been f um, between where we are and what we aspire to is so big that we forget that there's so much space <laughs> between that and there's so much possibility there yeah so we may have a beautiful aspiration to have a mind that is free from aversion, 
Yes. Don't give up on that. That's beautiful. But it doesn't mean that we fail if we feel aversion and we can just ease it a little bit or ease it for a moment. Yeah? Because that's the way we create change. Yeah? Moment by moment. Yeah? Keeping that, you know, that connection between our deepest, highest, most beautiful aspirations and the possibility of this moment and of attending skillfully right now. Sometimes called doing the best we can, yeah, with what we've got, yeah, right here. So, some ways to attend to hindrances because they appear, yeah, in our practice and not just on the first day of retreat. Sorry to tell you that, <laughs> yeah, you know, the Buddha spoke about them as appearing, you know, throughout our spiritual life and they actually get more subtle as we get more skilled, yeah? Yeah. And they apparently only fully disappear, yeah? Stop appearing when full awakening is reached, whatever that means, yeah? Yeah. Yeah, and I say that with, like, really, it's a beautiful question to ask and an important one, yeah? But we can have a sense of, ah, the beauty of also not knowing. But this doesn't mean that we cannot get more skilled with them because we can, and it's important that we do. Yeah, it's important for our meditation practice, it's important for our lives, yeah? and it's important for others. Because yeah? when we act out of reactivity, yeah, that causes ill-being to ourselves and to others and to the world that we live in, and we have no end of examples of that. So how do we attend first thing is to recognize, yeah, to recognize, yeah, so we may be caught up in something and we just open up to see, yeah, ah, and there's two things, two ways at least we can do this, we might check, is there a hindrance here, yeah, or what is the hindrance here, or we might just say, ah, there's probably a hindrance, yeah, at play, probably hindrances at play, in this moment. And when we recognize, yeah, when we recognize there's a hindrance at play or there's hindrances at play, we take a moment to breathe with it or to allow it. Yeah? And why do we do that? Because that diffuses reactivity. It just weakens that momentum. Yeah? There's a strong momentum of habit. Yeah? So we recognize, and it can sometimes be helpful to name hindrance or hindrances, yeah, don't even need to necessarily know which one and to allow, to breathe. Because yeah? we want to diffuse, we want to weaken, we want to take down at least a little bit that level of reactivity that's present. And then we attend. Yeah? And there's some ways of attending that are common to all of them, to all five, yeah? that will be helpful. The recognition, the allowance, and then um, things that we've been doing here already. Yeah, opening the space of awareness. Yeah. So something that happens um, with hindrances, um, with many other aspects of our experience, is that our awareness will shrink around them. That's what gives them, part of what gives them the weight, yeah, and the sense of reality, and that this is all that's happening. Yeah. Awareness becomes smaller, and all we feel, all we see, all we sense is the aversion, and life as we experienced it via aversion. Yeah, you can start to see what my strong hindrance is. I keep saying aversion, don't I? <laughs> so we can, with all of them, we open. Now we open the space of awareness as much as we can. We can do it with a sense of awareness, opening it to sound if you're working with sound. Yeah. Pull, they pull the awareness out, expand it. Uh, we can do it through the body, yeah? opening the awareness to the whole body feeling the whole body. Uh, if you're working with the breath, you might try and breathe in a way that spreads awareness through the whole body. Yeah, that's another way of doing it. So this is helpful with all of them, expanding awareness, expanding uh, where attention is. Yeah. Not small, large. And this is something we learn to do. It might not be easy in the beginning. Something we can learn to do. Sometimes images help. I, I have this image of pizza dough. 
<laughs> Imagine awareness like a, a really kind of um, flexible dough that you can just stretch like they do in a pizza restaurant. Sorry if I'm creating desire for some of you. So we just stretch the awareness. Yeah? So it might be helpful, that image or something else. Yeah. Or we can imagine the awareness like the sky. That is also an image that helps people, helps it open. We bring in yeah, interest and kindness. Yeah, again, we've been talking about this a lot. Yeah, but interest and a kindness or compassionate attitude yeah, also supports the opening of space, supports the unhooking from identification. Yeah, really helpful. Yeah, I'm interested in this, even though it's counterintuitive. Does that make sense to people so far? Yeah. We bring in um, another uh, two kind of attitudes that we've been naming, and I want to kind of amp up the importance at this point. Playfulness and patience, sometimes referred to as the two Ps. Yeah? There's a third, perseverance. But for, for, for us right now, playfulness and patience. Yeah? We bring in uh, these two. Yeah, playfulness means creativity. Yeah? Like having a sense of, ah, just checking, just exploring. What can I do here? Now, how can I engage with this? Yeah? Not just push it away, not just look for something else. Yeah? But actually engage with this in a creative way, in a playful way. Yeah? And the patience, which just reminds us, I don't have to get it 100% right, right now. And it doesn't have to go away completely. Yeah? It's not what this is about time yeah and this process takes place over time yeah so a moment of ease yeah a moment of exploration all really valuable really helpful so these are general ways yeah, of working with all of the five when they arise um, and there can be some specific ones as well so as I mentioned we can see uh, desire or greed and aversion as two sides of a coin yeah? When one is there, the other will be there. Yeah? And this can be a great game <laughs> to play. Yeah? Because if we remember this, we'll notice only one of them, yeah? usually. There'll be a version. And if I ask, ah, there's a version to this, what's the desire for? Opens up the space, yeah? loosens the hold. Yeah? That can be a, a fun game to bring in um, if you like games. There can also be specifics. When there's desire uh, or greed for something else, there's a discontent with what's present right now. So we can also open to see, is there something right now in experience that I appreciate or I'm grateful for? Yeah? Or that brings contentment? Yeah? So it might be just, oh, actually, I appreciate that I'm breathing <laughs> right now. Yeah? That's pretty nice. Yeah? So we turn our attention to that. Or I appreciate that I can be here. Or I appreciate that someone's cooking for me. Yeah? Even though they haven't made enough food. Yeah. But of course they wanted to. Yeah. And so we appreciate that. Yeah. We appreciate that. So that's kind of one way that we can work with, with the greed and desire. Uh, with aversion, we bring in kindness. Yeah. And that, yeah, sometimes, you know, just saying that, and I can sleep even. Kindness, yeah, when we're averse. But those two cannot, cannot be together, yeah? Yeah? Cannot be together. When there's aversion, yeah, very difficult uh, for kindness to, to come in. When there's kindness, it's very difficult to be averse, yeah? So we bring in kindness, yeah, or compassion, yeah? Maybe through... Um, some kindness to ourselves right now because this is not a pleasant state of being. Yeah? And we know that. Yeah. might be towards somebody else. It might be easier yeah. Yeah. to think of that. Yeah. And so we kind of just, these are kind of like, we call them antidotes. Yeah? Just bring that in. And again, not forcefully, yeah? but with gentleness, gen gentleness interest. Um, and we see in both these cases, with the aversion and the greed, what we're doing is we're unclenching that 
what we call the fist of demand. <laughs> this, is, this is how we meet life a lot of the time. Go away, or you know, I'm going to hold on to you. But it's the same thing. It's a clenched fist. It's really interesting. Yeah? So both of these, they unclench the fist of demand. Yeah? Bring in contentment, appreciation, gratitude. That fist opens. Yeah? Bring in friendliness, kindness, compassion. Opens. Can also work with gratitude, yeah, unclenching aversion. And you can explore what else does that for you. With restlessness and tiredness, it can be really helpful to see them as imbalances of energy and calm. I said this today in some of the groups. Yeah, they're actually related to each other. Yeah. Tiredness, there's calm, right? Definitely there's calm. <laughs> Yeah, but what, what there isn't is enough energy. Yeah. Restlessness, there's actually a lot of energy, but there's not a lot of calm. So we kind of see, ah, these are two qualities that, are, that interact with each other, and we can balance them. Yeah? And this is an ongoing exploration. It's not like we'll find, we'll find the sweet spot, and then we can just put it on automatic pilot, and everything will be perfect. Yeah? We need to engage with this in our practice, because it changes. But just remembering that, yeah? imbalance of calm and energy. So what do I need now? Yeah? How do I bring more energy? How do I soothe and bring more calm? Yeah? These are the, the questions. And uh, some ways that we can do that. Again, I said increasing the space, really helpful with both of these. Yeah? More space. Um, attending through the breath, through the breathing. If you're working with the breathing, really helps. So we can tune in to the in-breath more when we need more energy and actually see that as energizing the body. We can tune in to the calming and soothing of the out-breath. The body naturally relaxes. Yeah? So if we're really restless, tune into that, yeah? into the grounding. I'm doing these movements with my hands. Yeah? Energy has an upright movement. Yeah? Moves up. Yeah? We can imagine that also. And when we get more energized, it's like sometimes we can feel it in the body. Whoop, upright. Yeah? Energy moves up. Um, when we uh, uh, want to calm and soothe, that's actually a downward movement yeah? for many of us, grounding. Yeah? So we can play with that as well. Yeah? We might imagine the breath doing that, um, or we might just have a sense of more energy flowing out the body or more calm and soothing flowing down. We can uh, adjust the body posture a little bit. Yeah? So often what happens, you might notice when you're tired, when you're sleepy, the body slumps and closes. Yeah? Yeah, some of us, it's the natural, uh, it's the habitual way that our bodies go towards. Yeah? That's the habit. Yeah? So it might, that that might be that that's happening and then the tiredness follows. In any case, we can work with it through the body posture. Yeah? Reaffirm the alignment and the uprightness Relax the shoulders, let them drop down, open the chest. Yeah? All of that, um, really supportive. Yeah? With both of these extremes, with restlessness, we might find ourselves uh, leaning forward. I want to get to the next thing. Yeah? So there's this movement, either really physically or we just feel it energetically. Uh, and again, we can just align back to centeredness. We can also uh, play with visual imagery. So the Buddha would suggest imagining white light coming in through the forehead when you're feeling sleepy and tired. Yeah, it can be really, really helpful. And it might be that a more warm golden light is something that we use when we want to soothe and calm. Yeah, so we can play uh, with, with that kind of uh, imagery as well. Um, with sleepiness and tiredness, standing up really helpful, the posture of no escape, yeah, posture of no escape. For some of us, it's a wonderful posture. So if there's a lot of tiredness and dullness, just see what happens. Come into standing, be there for a while, um, and then you might find you want to do the rest of the session in a standing position, or the energy's returned, and you go back to sitting. So you can play with that as well. As you can see, I have a lot of tips, but I'm reining myself in. Um, 
with this. Um, and doubt. Doubt can be the most confusing one. First of all, it creeps in with most of them. <laughs> that voice that says you're doing something wrong. Yeah, that's doubt. Um, really helpful to ground in what we know and to simplify when doubt arises. When that voice comes and says you don't know what you're doing or the teachers don't know what they're doing or this whole place isn't for me. Um, just ground in what you know. Just say, ah, it's only three days. Yeah. And I want to be here. Yeah. I'm just going to keep it simple. Yeah. This breath. Yeah. This body. Yeah. Ground in what you know. This moment. Yeah. Not signing up for life. Yeah. Just this next moment. Yeah. Just this next moment. It can really, really help. Because yeah, doubt takes us out of, our, um, out of our experience and makes things really complicated. It's a complicator of things. And we want to simplify yeah, and ground and just keep it simple. Sometimes doubt arises around something uh, that we feel we need to make a decision around or resolve. You know, it's really good at doing that as well. If it's ongoing, and it's not just something that goes around in circles, make an appointment with it. Okay? Just say, not now. Yeah. At the end of the retreat. Yeah. On the drive home, or the train home, or whatever. I'll pay attention to you then. We can sit down and have a chat. Or if it's kind of, if it doesn't let go, then make a time during the retreat. But make a time. Yeah. During the lunch break. We'll sit down for 20 minutes and have a chat, me and you, doubt. And we'll talk about this thing. Yeah? And then we know we can put it down. Yeah? We can put it down because we have a time. No, I'll see you then. Yeah. No, no, just like your mother when she phones you. No, I'll see you then. Yeah. No, we said yeah. that, that time. Yeah? And we just yeah, go to that. Um, so these are some really helpful ways to work with doubt, but also remembering the other ones. The opening the space, and I would also say the grounding really helps. Yeah, feeling the contact, feeling the base of the body. Yeah. And doubt often manifests as thoughts. Yeah. Just thoughts. Yeah. Just thoughts. Not getting into the content. Okay. Two more things, and these uh, are uh, relevant to all, all the hindrances. Actually, going to be three, three things. Um, the first one, reminding yourself again and again, this is not who I am. Yeah. This is a hindrance that's shaping how I'm seeing experience right now. It's not who I am. Because it will say to you, this is who you are. I am you. Yeah, you are me. Yeah? Not who you are. And the second thing is that you don't need to believe the story it's telling you right now. Yeah. You can't do this. Yeah. You can do this. Yeah. So I was falling asleep on the cushion again. You better get up and ring the bell. Yeah, because she's not gonna do it. Yeah. Don't believe the story that the hindrance is telling you. I did have someone walk up to me once, only once, in many years of teaching, walk up to me once and check that I hadn't fallen asleep. Not here. Yeah, it did happen. It was great. <laughs> yeah. So remember this is not who you are. Remembering you don't need to believe the story it's telling you right now. And remember, this is an opportunity. Sometimes we say they're called hindrances uh, because they get in the way and they color our experience in a particular way that is not wholesome. But if we remember to recognize them and we remember that we can attend to them, yeah, they become opportunities yeah, because we can deepen our understanding yeah, and we can deepen our insight and we can deepen our wisdom and our compassion. Yeah, through that attending. So, not hindrances, opportunities. Yeah, for further growth, for further understanding. So let's have a, just a quiet moment together to bring this to a close.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.